My name is Harley Wilson, and the Old Testament reading is found in Psalms 13, verses 1 through 6. How long will you forget me, Lord? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I be left to my own wits, agony filling my heart? Daily? How long will my enemy keep defeating me? Look at me. Answer me, Lord my God. Restore sight to my eyes. Otherwise, I'll sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say, I won. My foes will rejoice over my downfall, but I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. Yes, I will sing to the Lord because he has been good to me. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Leslie Wilson, and the New Testament reading is found in Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from the God of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Joa Molly Plard. Please stand for the gospel reading. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. We begin today a four-week series on Advent. Uh, Advent is not just a fancy sort of spiritual-sounding name that we can use interchangeably with Christmas uh, or the holidays. Traditionally, Advent is a season before Christmas. Uh, In fact, Advent is a season that is meant to help us prepare for Christmas. Um, Traditionally, in fact, in in earlier times, Advent was really a, a, a time of repentance But that doesn't go so well with songs about sleigh bells and jolly elves and all of that. So, uh, but but really the idea is if you believe that the king of heaven and earth is arriving, how would you prepare your hearts? And certainly there is something in that about repentance and about making ourselves ready. And so this, these, these four Sundays in in Advent are, are, um, we're going to do a standalone series to talk about these things. We'll talk about hope in week one, and then love, and then uh, joy, and then peace. Um, 
we spent this last Thanksgiving week in Iowa, where Holly's family is from. We were supposed to go to Arkansas, where her sister now lives, but uh, we got word late last week um, that her grandfather, her 89-year-old grandfather, his health was rapidly declining, and, and so we all switched our plans and decided to fly home and, uh, and, and be in Iowa uh, for the week instead. And it ended up being a really uh, special week. It ended up being a very meaningful time. Uh, we, he went to be with the Lord a week ago today. Uh, I was asked, given the honor, really, to um, preach at his funeral service. Now, you have to imagine this is a town where there is one little two-block downtown, and there is one grocery store, there's one place to eat. They serve pizza and fried chicken. And, um, and, but, but there are two Lutheran churches in this town, you know. And, uh, and the one that, my, uh, that Holly's grandfather belonged to uh, was the one that he'd belonged to his whole life. Um, in fact, it was the same church that Holly's parents got married in 41 years ago. And so it's, it's one of those amazing things. And I kept meeting people at the service that their families had known one another for three, four, some of them even five generations back. Nobody left. Uh, and then a few days later, after the service, they were sorting through some of his clothes and stuff, and, and they said, hey, Glenn, n- none of us can fit into this, and so if you want to come over and see if you want any of this, you can have it. It'll be, you know, we'll, we'll be happy to be honored to give it to you. And so I got this jacket and this tie. And in fact, I got two other jackets, too. I mean, the styles, are, who knew, you know? Um, but I just want to warn you of that. If you see me wearing jackets over the next few Sundays, I'm stepping my game up uh, during Advent, uh, thanks, to, <laughs> thanks to Gordon. So anyway, um, but you know, there, I'm always struck by something when I, when I spend time at the farm. I'm struck by how different the pace of life is, uh, particularly than mine. My father-in-law is one of those, those strange, weird farmers that likes to do things uh, not ultra old-fashioned. I mean, he doesn't have horses, you know, pulling the plows or anything like that. He has tractors. Uh, but there's certain things he, he won't do. So he's talked about how uh, now there are these big business people, city people that have come in and bought over or rented land of other people's farms um, because it's no longer in those particular families. And so these big business people have come over and they, they, they call them in town, they call them ghost farmers. Because nobody actually sees them. They don't live there. They're not invested in the town. They don't live there. But they rent these, or they have these huge GPS-powered tractors, or GPS, you know, tractors that can, that can plow the fields and farm it at night while nobody else is out there. So they call them ghost farmers because you wake up one morning and there's the field. It's all done, you know. Um, my father-in-law is the opposite of that. He likes to do things himself. He likes to do things the slow way. And, um, I mean, even to the point, you know, there's, there are beans that are called Roundup Ready Beans. If, the, if, if that name sounds like that weed killer Roundup, that's because it is. And Roundup Ready Beans are beans that you can buy that have been genetically modified so that they can resist a mass spraying of Roundup over acres and acres of fields. And so it'll kill everything else but not these beans. Now, if that makes you a little concerned about your beans, perhaps it should, but... Um, but he, he chooses to not use Roundup Ready beans, but the result is you have to then go and pull weeds, and you have to walk the beans. Previous generations would know what that phrase means, walking the beans, is to walk the bean fields and to pull out the things that don't belong. All of those ways, that way of life, is a slower, uh, maybe even more, not maybe, definitely more inefficient way of life than many of us are accustomed to. Now, it's easy for me to sort of wax poetic and get romantic about this. I was only there for a week. 
I mean, by the end of that week, the slow Wi-Fi was already getting on my nerves, you know. So I, I don't think we can really uh, do this. But I think it, it, made, it made me aware of how much we don't like waiting and how we do everything we can to avoid waiting. We, if it means, um, you know, abusing the soil so we can get faster crops more quickly and not rotate them the proper sort of way, then so be it, because we don't want to wait. We don't want to wait for anything in our life. In fact... This starts at an early age. If you've done road trips with your children, you know it begins early, that you're on this long you know, road trip and you barely made it past Castle Rock. And one of my kids says, are we there yet? Like, no, Iowa is still that way. You know. Or even children thinking about Christmas. Is it, when is it going to be Christmas? Have you bought me this thing? Or in our house, you know, when is it going to be my birthday? Well, your birthday was just last week, honey. Like, it's going to take a whole other year, you know. This starts early in us, our aversion to waiting. And, and really, as adults, we're kind of similar, too. We don't want to wait in lines. We don't want to wait for slow-speed Internet. I mean, you know, you've seen the, the, the revised version of Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. You know, it's food, water, whatever, and then Wi-Fi is at the very bottom, you know. It's like, this is the new essential. I can go without many things, but not, you know. Until the moments in life when all of a sudden we are forced to wait. Until the times when we are forced to wait against our will. I think of maybe the times that we're forced to wait to get pregnant. When we were hoping that this would happen. Maybe the times that when you are pregnant, waiting, forced to wait for a baby to come. Maybe in other situations where you're just waiting for the doctor's report. You've had the scans, but now you just have to wait until you can get an appointment and find out what the decision is. You're waiting for someone to give you an answer about what's going on. You're waiting for a court date. You're waiting for a prodigal to come home. You're waiting for a parent to change their mind. You're waiting for a friend to say, I'm sorry, you're waiting for God to answer your prayers. And all of a sudden we realize there are these moments where waiting is forced on us and it's difficult to know how to do this. How do we wait and not despair? How do we wait in hope? How do we wait in hope without despairing? I think this was a question that was likely on the hearts and minds of the people of God, the Jews of the first century in Jesus' day. Because they were wondering how long until God comes through. How long until God does what He said He was going to do. We have these promises. We have these things. We have these hopes. We have Isaiah. We have Jeremiah. We have all of these things. You had people in Jesus' day that were doing calculations about dates. Gee, that's not like our day, is it? People doing calculations saying, we think this is the time when God's going to do something. But you could say that that, that there were maybe three groups of people that in Jesus' day and the way that they, three groups in terms of how they responded to this delay, to this waiting. One group just despaired and said, you know what, it's not happening. We we just, God said, you know, that that he was going to restore us. And yeah, we've come back from Babylon. We're not living in exile anymore. And yes, we've rebuilt walls. And yes, there's even a temple, even though Herod kind of built it. And we don't really trust Herod or like Herod. But I guess it's better than nothing. But hey, look, we're still under Roman oppression and rule. This isn't quite how it was in the glory days of David. And they're saying, and so some people said, you know what, forget it. 
None of it's true. We despair. Another group said, you know what? Sometimes you just got to take things into your own hands. These were the zealots. The zealots were the ones always looking ready to pick a fight with the Romans. Why? Because they sort of thought, maybe in the back of their minds, that if we would pick a fight with Rome, then maybe we would force God's hand. And God would have to bail us out. He wouldn't let us be slaughtered by Rome, would he? And so the zealots were the people that said, sometimes you can't just sit on your hands. you got to take matters into your own hands and then force God's hand. A third group was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were convinced that God was not acting because they had not been good enough. The Pharisees were the, they're the kinds of people that would have said, you know what? God is going to do what he said he was going to do, but, but you know what? He's going to do it once we've been obedient enough, once we've been faithful enough, once we've been deserving. I, I, I think that these three groups are very much alive and well in our day where we have much the same response when we think about why God is delaying, why we're still waiting When we feel forgotten, don't we fall into one of these three groups? Where either we say, okay, it's not happening. I give up. It's not happening. Or we say, you know what? If it's going to happen, it's because I do something about it. I'm I'm, going to, you know what? Sometimes you just got to act. And others say, you know what? I know why this isn't happening. It's because I don't read my Bible enough. Because, I, it's because I, 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 that one time I said I was going to fast, and then like by lunchtime I stopped fasting. I said I was going to do 21 days, and I didn't even make it three hours. That, that's why. Oh, God, have mercy. I'll try again. And we're convinced that there must be some reason. Or could it be that sometimes we just need to wait? Sometimes we just have to sit. But you know, when we're waiting, we need a way to mark time. We need a way to sort of say, all right, how are we counting the days? How are we numbering the days? How are we marking time? Because we can't just sit. You know, like the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks' character, right? Eventually he finds a way to say, oh, how many days have I been? He's counting the sunsets and sunrises and We find a way. I don't know what it is in us, but we we need a way to mark time. But the truth is we need a way to mark time that also reminds us of our hope. Not just marking time as in passing the time, but a way to mark time that gives us hope. Do you remember a few years back the story of the 33 Chilean miners that were trapped in the mines underground? Some of the stories that emerged, there was a guy that was kind of the hero of the bunch. His name was Mario. And in fact, some of the international press called him Super Mario because of just this guy's personality and the stories that came out. They said, this this Mario, he's the reason we were able to stay alive until we were rescued. And, And Mario found a way to keep everybody busy. And so they were marking time by a certain sequence of activities, and they would do certain things. So he would lead them on, on search missions to try to find, uh, you know, escape routes. And, of course, they didn't find any, but it was just, it was something to do, and it was kind of a rhythm. He said, in fact, in a later interview with ABC, he said, you know what, we had to keep society down there. 
We had to keep some sense of order, and so they would, they would keep the, themselves clean as much as they could, and they would have a certain rhythm, and they would do these things, and he would entertain them with jokes. That's part of the reason they called him Super Mario, he was this hilarious guy, you know, this jokester. And then they would start doing things like they would start making plans for their children. Of course, all of them in the back of their minds were thinking, are we ever going to see our children again? But Mario had them convinced that, look, you can't just mark time. You need to mark time in a way that reminds you of your hope. Mark time in a way that reminds you of your hope. This, in fact, is the reason we have something called the Christian calendar or the church calendar or the liturgical year. Now, if you're like me, this is all kind of new to you to say, but Advent, what's that? Is that like, uh, you know, again, some sort of a holier name than Christmas season, you know? No, it's, why, why do we do this? Why, why, what's the point? Are we being legalistic, Glenn? We have to do these fussy things. I'm, I'm not into legalism. Now, listen, listen, the spirit behind the church calendar is it's a way to mark time that reminds you of your hope. Because think about what we're doing. And some version of this developed in the early centuries. It began first by marking time around the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then they began to backfill it and say, okay, what about a season of preparation for that? And so we got Lent and then Christmas and all of this stuff. And then the season of preparation before Christmas and you get Advent and all of these different things. Why? Why? Because it's a way to say, listen, when we're waiting, we often need to remember that we're not the only ones waiting. What would have happened if those 33 miners said, okay, guys, everyone to your own corners, let's just wait it out? You go crazy. There's something about us that when we're waiting, and all of us are waiting for something, that when we're waiting, we need to remember that we're not alone in this waiting, that there are others who are waiting. So every Advent, when we engage in the season of longing, you can know that millions of Christians before you Millions of Christians around the world are on this same journey saying, God, oh God, oh come, oh come, Emmanuel. We're waiting. We're waiting. All is not quite well yet. We're waiting. But you know what else the church calendar does? Is it, it's a way to mark time around the life of Christ. See, I, there are many ways to mark time, by the sun, by the moon, by the revolutions of the earth and whatever else we learned in science class, and those are all perfectly fine. But the truth is you and I have other ways that we mark time. How many weeks until our vacation? How long till, we go, till we're going someplace warm? And we, this starts as children, right? How long till school's out? <laughs> How long till summer? How long we mark time by these different things that we're looking forward to. There's nothing evil about that. There's nothing wicked about that. But it's that times a thousand that is the reason behind the church calendar. Because it says, let's mark time around the life of Christ. And so it be, Advent begins with this, the, the whole year. This is the beginning of the new year for Christians. This is our happy new year where we're saying, okay, we are beginning this year by saying, Jesus, we're waiting, we're expecting. And then at Christmas we say, you've come. And then at Epiphany we say, God, give us eyes to see that you are the king that is reigning. And then after Epiphany we go into the season of Lent where we say, God, thank you that in my lowest of lows you're with me there still. And we're going to do a six-week series during Lent about the lowest places of our life and how Jesus is there too. And then out of Lent we come up into Holy Week and there's 
Good Friday and we think of the cross and the resurrection, Easter season and Pentecost, all this stuff. What are we doing? What happens when you start mar- marking time by the life of Christ? What starts to happen? You start to get hope. Why? Because you start to realize, what is it we're waiting for? I'm not just waiting for summer. I'm not just waiting for a vacation to Mexico. I'm not just waiting for the weekend. I'm not just working for the weekend. There's something else I'm marking time by. And the very way that I mark time reminds me of my hope. And what is it? Our hope is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. There are certainly many ways to express our hope. We could say it in very fancy, um, you know, theological language. But I like the language of Matthew in his gospel where he says, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. And then he starts quoting Isaiah. Isaiah said, they'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. If we were to say it in a phrase, what is our hope as Christians? What is our hope as Christians? You would say in a phrase, God with us. God with us. God with us is our hope, is our present hope. Imagine being alive in Jesus' day and you're saying, okay, well, I, I was hoping that God with us would mean the removal of my situations, the changing of my circumstances. I was hoping that God with us would mean Everything being changed and, and different in obvious ways. Why is it that God with us is a present hope? Because it means that even in your sorrow, He is there. Because it means even in your grief, He is there. Because it means even in your questions, even in your doubt, He is there. Because it means even in the cloud, He is there. God with us as a present hope. Matthew setting up his gospel this way with the annunciation, the angel saying, this is what his name is going to be called. And listen, all around you, things may look exactly the same, but everything is different because God is with you. Church, I wonder what would happen if that just sort of erupted inside of us. You say, you know what, I, I, I've, been, I've been waiting for, for this to change and, and for that to change, and I, and I still am hoping for that, I'm still praying for that, but, but you know what, God, give me new eyes to all of a sudden realize that even in this situation, God is with me. That even in this difficulty, that even in these questions, that even in these un- unanswered prayers, that even in this moment, God is with me. During Lent, we're going to spend a lot of time examining this, examining the prayer that Jesus prayed that didn't get answered. Father, take this cup from me. The feeling that Jesus had of being forsaken. We're going to examine all of those things so that we can say that, listen, there is nothing that we feel or experience or go through that Christ himself has not gone through as well. So that in the lowest place, we can say, Emmanuel, God is with us. Somehow, he still is. God with us is also our future hope. 
our future hope, not just our present hope, but our future hope. Did you catch the reading from the New Testament this morning in the book of Revelation? And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old one had passed away. This is all sort of imagery language. And then he says, And now the city from heaven came down, descending into earth. And someone announces, Behold, God will now dwell with humanity. Can I tell you something? That the hope for us as Christians is not of going away somewhere, but that God is moving in here. Now think of that, because chances are your whole life you've been trained to think that hope for the Christian is, I'm getting out of here, and so all of us are sort of like a group of aliens waiting for the spaceship. We're all E.T., waiting to go home. Or Scotty, waiting to be beamed up, not Scotty, the other, Scotty's the one who beams up, but yeah, I say I'm not a Star Trek person, shouldn't have gone there. But we're all people waiting to be taken up because this whole world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Rubbish. That's not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. What is in the Scripture is this glorious picture that what Jesus began at the incarnation, he will complete one day. That God with us, Emmanuel at the incarnation, is Emmanuel in the fullest possible sense on that great and glorious day. And what happens when God is fully with us All of a sudden, heaven and earth become new. All of a sudden, tears are wiped away. All of a sudden, death itself has no more power. All of a sudden, things get put back together again. Think of that. That's what happens when God fully is with us. That's our future hope. And I want to say a word about this notion of a second coming. Now you're all looking at me. Because Advent is arrival, and, and typically when we talk about Advent, we think about his first Advent, and then we think about the second, second Advent. But do you know, this, this idea of a second coming is sometimes misleading because it implies that he went away. And that is, in fact, what we think of when we think of the Ascension. Do you remember this when we did our Acts series? And we started our Acts series by saying, look, when Jesus ascends into heaven, it's not, it's not him being the spaceman going home either. What it is, is it's an ascension as you think of a coronation. A king ascending up to a throne. A king being installed and inaugurated and saying, I'm ascending now. I am now at the control room of the galaxies. The ascension scene is not Jesus saying, peace out, y'all. We'll see you in a couple thousand. The ascension is Jesus saying, and now that I have completed the work, and now that my father has lifted me up, I now reign over all. And one day that, real, that rain will become obvious and visible. But right now it's invisible, and the ones who have been graced with faith see. So there are several scholars that say this Greek word for, that we often use for second coming or coming, the parousia. There are many scholars that say the parousia is better translated as saying his appearing. Because it's not a coming like he's been absent but it's, it's a king who's always been there, but one day it, he will appear. Now, how does that change your view of God with us? How does that change it? That even though we cannot see it, Jesus Emmanuel is God with us, reigning and ruling, and one day he will fully appear. Think of that. 
Think of what that does for your hope. Imagine for a moment how your life would be different if this hope came alive inside of us. Holly and I were talking the other day about these conversations we seem to be having with ourselves and with others in our stage of life, you know, and, and if, if 30s, maybe even in your 40s, I'm not sure yet, I'll let you know when I get there. But I think there's this thing, you know, in your 20s you have these ideals, at least we did, we and our friends have these ideals of, of man, one day we're going we're gonna to live in community, you know, or we're going to have this kind of a friendship circle and whatever, you know. And you get to your 30s and you're like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of there. You know, we have this. And you start to tell yourself, you know what? All I'm missing is a few more pieces. If I just had this and then this, then, whoa, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I've been waiting for. And really, perhaps a lot of us do this in, in many ways. You know, if I could just sign this deal, I'm telling you, things are going to change. If I could just... Get this promotion, uh, man, if we could just move into that house or that neighborhood, if we could just upgrade our vehicle to be in the same decade that we live in, (laughs) then things will change. And have you ever felt over and over again that you've been left short? Maybe you've hit one of those milestones and you're like, huh. okay. You know what looks good, though? is that. I'm telling you, <laughs> this may not be an example that you relate to, but just for vulnerability's sake, this happened to me as a young worship songwriter. When I thought, you know what, if someone would record my songs, that'd be amazing. Then I got to record my songs. Then I thought, well, if someone would just sing my songs, that'd be amazing. And then people began singing my songs. Thought, wow, that's a, that's, wow, wow. And then I realized there was this chart system of Whose songs are most sung? I thought, well, if only I could be in the top 25, that would be... Could you imagine? And then you get to number 25, briefly. <laughs> and, and, and you say, huh, you know, top 10 probably feels great. Never gotten there. But there's so many versions of that in life, aren't there? If I just have, if we just have one good friend, then we would really feel like we are. And then you get a good friend. You're like, well, if we had a whole meal group of friends like this. And there's always something that keeps bringing you up short. Do you know there's a word for this? There's a word for this. Poets and philosophers. It's a German word called senzucht. The feeling that all things in life are incomplete, unfinished, and imperfect. You're like, if only someone had told me. Now, now you know. <laughs> it's the longing for a far-off country that is somehow familiar or even home. It's the mixture of nostalgia and longing. You're longing for something, and yet it sort of feels familiar. And so every time you get close, you think, oh, yes, yes, this is it. Yeah, and this happens to us around the holidays, right? Oh, great, it's going to be so good. It's going to be so great. We're going to get the lights on. We're going to get the tree. And then something goes wrong. Somebody gets in a fight. Someone complains about a gift. Someone doesn't show up for the holiday. The turkey gets burned, you know, whatever. And then you say, wow, we we were so close to having the perfect holiday. Oh, you've had this experience. 
you're not alone. That feeling is the Zenzukt. In fact, I've said this in an earlier series this year, and I recommend that we add this to our lexicon, our vocabulary, and we just say, oh, man, you've just been Zenzukt. You know, it's like instead of saying you've been punked, you say, you've been Zenzukt, man. You've been brought up short. You thought it was, you've been left hanging. Because I think what we're actually longing for is beyond all of those things, isn't it? Every longing for a harmonious family is really a longing for that great feast that Isaiah spoke of, the banquet feast of the Messiah in the last day. Every longing for reconciliation and right relationships is a foreshadow longing of something larger than that. And here's what I want to say to you. That does not diminish your longings for a good family or a nice holiday or a better job. That, that's not to invalidate your longings. That's to help you acknowledge the limits of those longings. The sooner we recognize the limits of these longings, the better we are for it. Then you don't build on those things. Does that make sense? These smaller longings are good. They're hints. They're shadows of joy. But they're not the joy himself. Joy himself is Emmanuel. Our hope is personified is Jesus, God with us. And when we see that and we build it on him, then all these other longings and hopes can kind of take their place in secondary roles. That's okay. They can kind of fall in line. Again, the Christian response is not to say, get rid of all your desires. That's the Buddhist response. The Christian response is to say, let me align your desires and make your longing really be for Christ. And then let all these other hopes fall in line. And then all of a sudden you can find contentment in the waiting. Then you can find hope instead of despair. Then you can find contentment instead of reaching for control. Then you can find trust instead of this religious performance thing. All these other things begin to snap in. God with us means hope instead of despair contentment instead of trying to be in control, trust instead of trying to perform. Would you